Hey guys, welcome back to the Japan Archives. We're on episode 44 now, and this is our official first episode of year two. Oh, we're a little podcast where we do the histories, the myths, and the legends of Japan, and we endeavor to do a poem or two along the way. Uh, I'm your host, Thomas. I'm your co-host, Heather. This is our first episode of year two, like we said. Last week we said we were going to start with an ode to Basho. We are pushing that back one week for you guys. We There's a lot about him, obviously. And we want to do a little bit of justice to him. We want to do that little bit of extra research to round it all out for you. So we were thinking that for our very first episode of year two, we would do the next part of our Shinto mythologies we've been working through. After all, the first episode of year one was also Shinto. So why not start off year two the same way? We are fortunate, though, that though we have pushed Basho back for you, and we apologize, Heather has found a good poem by our lovely friend Basho to tide you over before next week. So we're following in the spirit of we said we would do Basho for our first episode back. So we are doing Basho from a certain point of view. I also want to say, just before we start this one, congratulations to you and to us, Heather. We finally hit 100 listeners for our show this week. So again, not a bad start for our start of year two. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. But we should jump into the episode. We've done a few of these now, but I think, as ever, I'm going to ask Heather, do you remember where we left the story off last time? They finally kicked him out of heaven, right? Like they finally, he he had like killed some couple people i think and eaten food and done all kinds of just really mischievous and not great things they finally just said yeah out get out leave i think he was he was at the point he had been kicked out correct yeah so we left it on a bit of a cliffhanger in that he was expelled from heaven after he he had caused his sister to run away into the rock cave and the world had fallen into darkness that's right, that's right. Jumping back into it then, for you and for everyone else, the next part of the story. Like we said, Susanoo is finally ready to leave heaven. He has caused enough offense. You know, he like we said, he caused the sun goddess to run away for a time. And generally, he has proven himself to be, oh dear, not a very nice person. So he's now living in exile, I suppose, for all his misdemeanors and... After leaving heaven, he makes his way to a river known as He in the province of Izumo. Again, I'm just going to say here, this is one of those things where depending on the version you read depends on where he goes, and especially also depends on the river that he ends up as. But it doesn't seem to affect the story too much, so I just went with this one for now. Now, when he arrives here, he begins to hear weeping in the distance. And this does pique his interest. And so he decides to venture forth to try and find the source of the distress that he is hearing. His wandering finally draws him towards an old man, his wife, as well as their daughter. And it looked to Susanoo that the parents were actually weeping for their daughter. But at that moment in time, he obviously did not know why. And so he goes up to them and asks, why ever do you mourn? And so the old man looking at the deity before him, he replies saying that, his name was Ashinazushi, and that he was an earth deity, and that his wife was called Tenazushi. He then points to his daughter and says, This is my daughter, Kushinada Hime, and it is for her that we do weep. Once upon a time, we did in fact have many daughters. We actually had eight, 
But every year there is a dragon, known as Yamato no Orochi, which comes forth to devour one of our daughters. Kushinada Hime is our final daughter, and we don't want to lose her to this dragon. We had eight daughters. We lost seven, but it's this eighth one we really got to keep. So what happened, like, that shouldn't this have been uh, an issue prior to losing seven other daughters? One would, one would wonder. I would hope that in this case it was, but... I guess as well for those other seven, there was no one around to save the day. Mm. And so they their um, desperation couldn't be felt by anyone else at the time, perhaps. But you would think a deity would have some sort of deity support system or network to be able to contact other deities to get assistance. But I guess perhaps not. Perhaps not. I think you're right there. Or as ever, we can come back to the whole thing of when you're looking into myths and legends like this, you just kind of got to roll with it at times i find okay rolling but we'll we'll also see that later on as well i think in mm. this story now susano he starts racking his mind thinking however can i help to save this girl and in the end he asks them to hand over their daughter to him they agree to this and susano it appears does have some kind of magical powers to him and he turns the girl into a many-toothed comb which he then places in his hair and so he disguises her as a comb to hide her from the dragon which is about to come after he had done this he then talks to the old couple again and asks them to brew eight giant vats of sake for him and have them ready for the appearance of Yamato no Orochi and so they all wait together and eventually the dragon does appear now from the description of the dragon, it is always the same, and it does have some reminiscence of the Hydra from the Greek myths, in that it wasn't a dragon with one head, but it was actually a dragon with eight heads. And this goes back to the whole inconsistencies with myths and legends, I think we've mentioned. And it seems that Susano seems to obviously, he's met these two people for the first time, and he's also heard about this dragon, you would assume, for the first time. However, from what he tells them to do with the sake, it appears that he instantly has a knowledge that he will be facing a monster which has eight separate heads. And another thing that I thought about is that obviously we've had a few episodes now where we've had dragon tales, or at the very least we've mentioned dragons, and that at least in the Shinto myths where it's supposed to be showing you how the world and everything was created, there is actually no origin point to dragons mentioned in them. Oh. Unlike Greek myths and things, you can always find where creatures are descended from or what their lineage is, but with Shinto, there doesn't seem to be this. The only deity we have talked about before, which has links to creature creation i suppose was ukemochi all the way from episode 12 but in that one she was only described as making things with either fins so creatures of the sea or she made creatures of rough and fine hair so presumably mammals there is no mention of her creating animals with scales for instance Hmm. and so again we have no real origin stories for this but there are many dragons associated with the myths and legends and folk tales of Japanese history. Could it be something? I mean, from my rudimentary and basic knowledge, that 
legends of dragons came from like Chinese mythology. So maybe it was perhaps something that just kind of was like, it had the origins in Chinese mythology, and maybe they were just brought into these legends as well. Just not really giving an origin just because the understanding that they are there, that it came from another mythology. That's an interesting point, actually, because I'm trying to think as well. These stories were ordered to be compiled by an empress at the time, Hmm. basically to bring all of these myths and legends together to make a cohesive narrative Hmm. to, for one, legitimize the reign of the emperors by linking them to the sun goddess but also by bringing together all the myths to show how Japan itself was created. So if there was beliefs of them coming from China, I suppose it would make sense that they did not include that part of the story because they were trying to create a narrative which showed how purely Japan was made. Hmm. So I see where you're coming from there. Thank you. Now back to the story. So the dragon has finally appeared. Like we've said, it's a giant eight-headed beast, but it also has an eight-forked tail and eyes that shone bright red. Such was the size of this dragon, trees actually grew upon its back, and its body was so long that it completely covered eight hills and valleys simultaneously. Now, they were fortunate enough that Susanoo had actually been right. Apparently, this dragon did have a great liking for sake, and so it dipped each and every one of its heads into the large vats that it came across and drank its fill until eventually it fell asleep. And I suppose by this point, it was too inebriated to remember the reason it was actually here, which was obviously for the girl. And so as the dragon slept, that is when Susanoo then took up his 10-span sword, which was known as, well, one of the names it is known to have gone by is Orochino Aramasa, which can be broken up into three words of like serpent, rough, and true. And using this sword, he began to behead the creature. But he did not just stop there, and he decided to proceed to cut the rest of the body of the dragon into very small pieces, until he eventually worked his way down to its tail, in which he made an interesting discovery. As he was making one more slice into the dragon, he pulled his sword out to find that it was now dented. This made him grow curious, and so he decided to open up the tail to see what had caused such damage. And this is when he found another sword inside the tail of the dragon. Now, this is a sword which became known as Kusanagi, or sometimes it's also known as Murakumo, these meaning either grass mower or assembled clouds, respectively. It's said that when Susanoo found this sword, he recognized it as a divine sword, perhaps quite rightly, as he had been exiled from heaven. He decided it was not for him to keep due to its divinity, and so it's said that he gave it up to the deities of heaven. Now, he's been expelled from heaven, so don't ask me how he got it, to these gods and goddesses, but nonetheless, somehow this sword makes its way back into heaven. And if you know about Japan and the idea of the sacred regalia for the royal family of the sword, the mirror, and the jewel, this is the sword that makes up those three sacred items. Oh, so what what were the three sacred items again? This That is... So the Imperial family has three sacred objects, which has been with their family apparently for, well, since the very first emperor. One is a sacred sword, which is this sword, which was found in the dragon. There is also a mirror, and there is also a sacred jewel, 
which is the same shape as the, the comma-shaped beads, which were known as the Magatama. Now, I won't say too much more about those three items. I am planning right now an episode where I want to tell the like the history of each item, like where it went through history and where it is today. But yes, as to the origins of that specific sword, it was found inside of a dragon, at least according to the legends anyway. Hmm. So after this, after Susano's brave endeavors, he decides to go on and settle in a place known as Sugo. Suga in Izumo province and at the same time he decides to marry the woman that he has saved. He then composed a poem which went as follows. Yakumo Tatsu, Izumo Yahegaki, Tsumagome ni, Yahegaki Tsukuru, Sono Yahegaki o, which we can translate to many clouds arise on all sides of the manifold fence to receive within it the spouses. They form a manifold fence. Ah, a manifold fence. Now, I'm going to ask Heather for her interpretation of this because to me it sounds like a very, very strange poem. So the first thing that pops out at me is word tsuma. Aim, aima, tsuma. So... Okay. Uh, wife. So you, you have like a oto or shujin and tsuma. There's, there's another word for wife too. So I'm, I'm surprised that they said spouses versus wife for the translation. So I'm, I'm interested in that. Yahigaki, yahigaki. I feel like that is a, that's a, um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. This, there's a quite a few words that I'm not familiar with, but going back to you saying, oh, it's interesting that they used spouses as the translation. The book that most people draw their, um notes and their research for the Nihongri, they normally go to a book which was translated by a man known as W.G. Aston, and he translated the book all the way back in 1896. So ah. the translation itself is also over a hundred years old, which could also explain the strange choice of words for the poem in English. Yeah, I mean, English itself has gone through quite a few changes and actually we'll touch on that when we get to the, the poem section um, because the translation we have is kind of in older English as well so yeah because the word manifold is is quite oh, no, not too many people say um, manifold these days so that would make sense plus two perhaps like some even like Japanese language has meanings and stuff have evolved a little bit over time as well or quite a lot um, so possibly those words might have been understood to mean something different and they've just gone through the over 100 years, 100, over 150 years, I guess. Um, the meanings may have changed too. So that's that's interesting. No, I think this is one where we've actually come up a bit of a, in a bit of a blank due to the age of the actual English translation. Because I know most of our translations for last year were modern books. Are at least books from the last ten years. Yeah, I think I will. I will consult with the professor on this one to see if he is familiar with this poem, and if maybe we can find the the kanji for it. Might be really interesting to look up. So after he has composed his, let's say, lovely poem, I'm sure it was lovely in the original Japanese. Hmm. So he's composed his lovely poem, and then after some time, he and his new wife do come together, and they produce a new deity known as. Oho Namochi. To the parents of his wife, he then bestowed upon them the titles of 
Palace Masters. And this title was basically for them to be the masters of the palace, which was created for Susanoo's son, Oho Namochi. And after all of this, he's saved the woman, he's married the woman, he has a child now. Susanoo then, finally, I feel like we've been saying this for a long time, he finally proceeded to Yomi to be united with his mother, Izanami once and for all because if we remember all these times ago every time he's complained it's like I want to go meet my mother but first I need to go say bye to my sister okay I need to go see my mother now but first I'm gonna ruin heaven for everyone oh I've been exiled I need to go see my mother but first let me just get married and have a kid so it's been a lot of postponement at least for Susanoo but he has finally achieved the original goal. I feel like it's when you play a video game and you do all the side quests instead of the main mission, that's basically what he was doing with his life. I, I The way you put that, I don't think I can improve upon that because that is, yeah, he side, side quested. Yeah, because I thought this whole thing started was to be reunited with his mother and that was what, last year? Oh my gosh, that was over a year ago that we, we even talked about this. I had completely forgotten until you had mentioned that last line. I went, rather interesting, almost like um, a growing up story where you have, um, goes out on a journey and almost like a re re redemptive in a way. He, he grew up and he matured and then he finally, once he was able to mature, then he could reach his goal. I like that interpretation actually. Yeah, because I suppose this very last section of his story is very different to all the characteristics we have seen for him so far like yes he's only ever been angry and childish and very destructive in how he acts and like he didn't seem to care about anything like obviously he said i have to go say goodbye to my sister but then it was almost like that was just a lie because he wanted to go and cause a bit more havoc because he knew he could but mm. whereas this part it's a complete three no not 360 because that would mean he's gone back to being the same it's a complete 180 yeah because when you first started telling the story i'm like this doesn't sound like susano is this the same susano did you are you sure it's the same susano but if we think about it in that terms and then i guess too to compile the stories to have it like if you're going to tie it back to like a sacred object the fact that he wasn't able to get the sacred object until he almost in a sense, uh, redeemed himself by helping out someone else and saving um, saving the woman. He had to, in order to get this particular item, he had to show how kind of bad he was and then how he was, he changed and matured and was willing to help others. And then that's when he was able to get a sacred item, which was then very important for uh, Japan's history. So in a way, it's like, that is his proof of redemption. I'm not sure if that's what the what the um, writer intended, but that's perhaps maybe through the lens of our own cultural perspectives. I guess having kind of like mm -hmm. a you know uh, what's it called like a, like a hero's journey, I guess where yeah, like a hero's journey story. So this just kind of going through the through how you know we are looking at it through Western culture versus looking at it through. At least that's it. So I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a, in a 
intelligent, culturally respectful way. I mean, we are looking at these stories because we, you know, we grew up in a Western perspective, a Western culture, and we have the ideas of the stories, which do share some similarities, but because these stories are from a like Japanese perspective, the meanings might be different in Japanese versus the way we're looking at them, which is we're interpreting them as coming from you know, our particular culture and the way our stories and everything that we were taught. Yeah, I suppose there is, due to the, I don't want to say cultural divide, that seems like the wrong term, but I think you know what I mean. To us, a story, it goes back to the whole, the time when we did the poem about the samurai, when I had a certain interpretation mm. based on how we see things from an English perspective, but then the professor actually told us, actually, it means this from our cultural perspective, which was almost the complete opposite of what I was hmm. thinking. Yeah, and and I mean, t- to be honest, our, our knowledge base too. We, we, as we explore more, we learn more. And we can go back. I, I'd love to come back to this, um, this like this particular story, uh, or just Susano. I'd love to come back to Susano like later on and come back and listen to this, like learn the story again and listen to it once we've gotten more, like more information just to kind of see um, the understanding. And it could be, you know, we might be actually onto something because there is something like interesting. I've, I've seen that there, I mean, you've seen too, you've noticed that there are similarities within the way s- some stories are s- told or shared. Hello, Mr. Crow in the background, ruining our audio. I think he's trying to tell me something, but I can't speak crow. There's a lot of similarities in cultures as well. So I mean, there are some similarities, but there are some differences too. So I think the fact that we just, so we could be on the right track because there are some similarities within cultures too. There are differences. And as the more we say- Don't worry, carry on. I'm trying to ignore the crow. It's I know, just, I'm trying really uh, hard to. Oh my God. I, I tell it- episode of year two and it's a hot mess because of a crow <laughs> <laughs> we're just wanting to call back to episode one call back to episode one um a hot mess this one's a more lukewarm mess okay where was i going i don't even know where i was going you might just want to cut that whole bit out because i was basically trying to say that there are a lot of similarities between culture and like stories um that are shared amongst cultures but they do have some differences and it's worth this, the fact that we are setting them and we are setting them kind of from our perspective, but to try to, as much as possible, we do try to get things more from like the Japanese perspective. We do try to consult with um, like native Japanese speakers and Japanese people, as well as people who've studied Japanese extensively to try to not compensate, but try to to make sure that we give them as much understanding as possible. And I think I'm just going to have to stop because I'm distracted by the crow. Thank you, Mr. Crow, for ruining whatever was on Heather's mind. I'm sure it would have been. Oh, yeah, there he goes again. So I'm going to round it out with a little bit extra about the stories. So like I said before, there's with these myths, there are always several versions of the tales, even in the Nihongi itself it is a document compiled of here is the main story. However, as an, as, as an addendum, in one version, it goes like this, or in another version, it goes like this. So it can get complicated. And in some of these versions, the names of the gods do change. But the one I do quickly want to mention is I came across one where he finds the old man and the woman grieving for their daughter. However, at the time, the mother was still pregnant. 
And she tells Susano that every time she um, gives birth to a new daughter, this is when Yamato no Orochi appears to then take their child from them. And as she is close to term, they fear they will soon happen again. In this version of the story, she does eventually give birth like Susuno stays with them until it happens and that is when the dragon does come and just as he's about to eat this newborn child Susuno actually jumps in to talk to the creature. Susuno confronts him and basically says oh dear you're such an awful deity but because you're so awful I dare not neglect to give you a feast and so he actually proceeds to pour the sake himself into the creature's eight different mouths until the creature becomes so drunk that he falls asleep and that is when he then cuts the creature once more into eight different pieces so I wanted to just mention that version because whereas a lot of the others were quite similar this is quite different in that he's protecting a newborn child Mm. as opposed to a full-grown woman which i kind of liked so this this version is this is the end of the story did he find the sword once he chopped yamato no, no, no orochi or did he this just this this particular version just ends with him being chopped to pieces oh no the rest of the story continues in much of the similar vein which is why i didn't ah. say that part of the story again it does continue he does cut up the dragon he does find the sword still does he still marry the girl? Uh, once she's grown up, yes. Hmm, okay. Well, at least when she's grown up, that's... That's something. I mean, if you look at the previous version, so they had once had eight. I mean, even technically, do they have eight all at one time? Or do they have one daughter get eaten, have another daughter get eaten? So we don't even know like if he had, it was all eight at one time or if it was kind of the similar story. So this one, it was have a daughter, daughter gets eaten, have another daughter, the daughter gets eaten. So I, mean, I guess we don't know if they were like the the daughters were all at the same time or if it was just one at a time. No, I think from what I was reading that, yeah, in this version, it was they would have a child, the dragon would come. They would have another child, the dragon would come. And for what I assumed in the other version was they once had eight daughters and then once a year, the dragon would come and take a random one of them. So the, the daughters themselves were all, all deities as well. Then I guess, correct? Presumably so, yeah. They were daughters of two deities. I'm not sure if his mother was a deity. Only the father calls himself an earth deity. Okay. However, they do have similar names. So I am assuming she is also a deity of some form. So all of their daughters would also have been. So Thomas, with this tale being told, do we now leave Susano or do we come back to Susano? That is actually... The last time he will appear as at least a main character in these stories. I don't recall ever seeing him again in the events that happen after this. Ah. So if you were growing attached to him, Heather, or anyone at home, time to say your goodbyes. Well, I wasn't growing so much attached to him till this episode where he was helping instead of destroying everything. Mm. <laughs> so, but at least for me, that is my part of the episode done for today. I have nothing more really to say about Susanoo, so I will, as ever, hand it over to your literary corner. Okay, thank you so much. So when Thomas and I were discussing the episode for this week, and we decided to delay Bashol because we wanted to do more research, and we both thought that 
like he said, we wanted to make sure we gave um, Basho the proper respect as much as we are able to at this point in our research. And um, we'll try our best. We want to probably will need to come back to Basho, um, like Hokusai, we'll have to come back to Basho in the future because there's just so much information. Well, Thomas told me the story he wanted to, to tell and it had a dragon. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go look for a dragon poem. There, there must be a dragon poem. And so I did a search and I don't know how I got from dragon to dragonfly. And interestingly enough, with dragonfly, I also got two and one of the websites I encountered had a poem and also referenced Lefkadia Hearn's book, Japanese Miscellany. And I know Thomas had recently bought a Lefkado Hearn book and asked him like, oh, Thomas, let's check the library. Which one did you get? And he pulls up a book and he's got another Basho poem, except this one's about butterflies. <laughs> All that little roundabout way to say, we're going to do a Basho poem today, and it's not about dragons or dragonflies, but it is about butterfly. So tangential journey to get to Basho. I think it's just a sign that we are inevitably working towards his episode. Wherever we look, his head pops up once more. I... I, I... I, I hope he would enjoy the fact that we keep uh, encountering him wherever we go. So with uh, that background out of the way, I'm not going to talk about Basho today because we've mentioned him before and we're going to have a whole episode on him. But I will say that the dragonfly poem that I saw, I definitely want to include that in next week's. But this one was just really cute and, and joyous and happy. And so I wanted to use it today. And Thomas, uh, although you were the kind provider of the text, which is from Lefkadia Hearn's book. Which book is this that we are pulling from? The book that I got this from was from Kwaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things. Thank you so much, Thomas. As I was going around exploring everything and we ended up back in the lives so your virtual, for me, virtual library, your physical library, but for me, virtually. So although you know, you know the translation, but I'll go ahead and uh, see, I'll test your memory. Okay. Oki okiyo, wagatomo nisen, neru kocho. From what I can remember when I looked at this before we started recording, um, the oki is being used as a shortening of okiru, so like to get up or to wake up, I assume. The yo in Japanese context, is that more to emphasize a point? Yeah. So, oki, oki, so get up, get up, but yo, it's like, no, get up, kind of thing. Wagotomo ni sen, I cannot remember, actually, so you'll have to enlighten me, but the neru kocho, neru is, like, the verb for to sleep. Um, kocho, um, I don't know what butterfly is in Japanese, but I feel that this Cho-cho. Cho-cho. Oh, so this is calling it a little butterfly? Because it's not cho-cho, it's ko-cho. That is a really good question and a really good observation because I was wondering why ko-cho, because ko-cho is like a, a word for boss. Are you like ko-cho-sensei, which is the like principal. So I like your thinking and I wish I could see the kanji for this. <laughs> I could know for sure. I'm going to guess maybe it is because yeah neru chocho or no I, it, it wouldn't be a pun because they wouldn't work in that 
extent. Yeah, but I like your I like your idea, like small butterfly. I think that to me that, that makes that I, I could see some some logic. Because as well, he would need to do something with the chocho to make it fit into the five seven five mm. of the poem as it needed to be, and I suppose small butterfly would have fit the bill nicely. Mm. What do you think, if you can recall, what do you think this poem means? Well, I would need you to remind me what the second line of the poem is, because that was the section that I couldn't recall. So I think the tomo, if I had to guess, is like friend. Um, but waga, waga tomo, I mean, I know waga mama means selfish, but waga tomo, I'm, I'm not familiar with. And then ni... I'm assuming is is the particle and sin. Um, I honestly don't know because I don't. It's just the we only have the romanji. We don't have the kanji for this. So honestly, I'm not sure what sin means in this context at all. Ignoring the second line, then I am. Um, even though I'm missing a third of the poem, I'm going to jump out on a limb and say it is something about wake up, wake up, Mister Butterfly. It's time to wake up. Also, I just did a quick um, dictionary search. And Thomas, you are my wagatomo. Selfish friend. How dare you? No! <laughs> no! So what does wagatomo mean? According to Google Sensei, it means my friend. Okay. So wake up, wake up, my special friend. Special friend, did you say? Sorry? No. My best friend, close friend. What did you say? Uh, My friend. Okay, so wake up, wake up, my friend, the sleeping butterfly. So he's calling the butterfly his friend. I'm going to read because this is a this is a direct translation. This is from Lafcadia Hearn, which was what not, early 1900s. This book was published originally, January 20th, 1904. Yeah, so this is over a hundred years old now. This is the translation that um, Lafcadia Hearn gave, and I'm going to read this direct translation again noticing the time frame of when it was done wake up wake up i will make thee my comrade thou sleeping butterfly now that you've reread that i do rem i remember that from before we started recording and mm. i did think the idea of comrade was a strange word to use i was thinking oh are they using some kind of military term which didn't make sense with the butterfly but now that you said the wagatomo is my friend back then it was more common to call someone a comrade instead of a friend so i like i understand now what you were saying when we did the first poem with the it's interesting to see the change and we'll see it later and mm, i definitely see that now here yeah i mean so i mean ordinarily now we probably would not use that term and also it is not very common to use thou anymore as far as i'm aware I, I've I've not used it in everyday life, um, <laughs> unless I'm if I read a Bible verse, I might you know King James version, I might use some vowels or some Shakespeare. So I mean, I, I like this translation just because of we, we've got the history, like the changing of English and how the, how Japanese poems were translated in the early 1900s versus how they are translated now. So I'd love to find a more modern translation of this poem and I'm hoping to ho hunt for that. But according to Lefkadia Hearn, this poem is to uh, 
suggest the joyous feeling of springtime. So I guess you you see a butterfly out and like, ah, oh, let's be friends, butterfly. Although I guess if it's like on a flower, just kind of like resting and uh, just kind of, I guess, getting nectar. He wants to wake up and be friends and enjoy the lovely warm spring weather. It's a very cute poem to be sure. Yeah. And when, when you shared it, I was like, oh, oh yeah, I, I need to read that. That is very good. Now we also know a new term in Japanese. So I'm very excited to learn more Japanese too. Yeah, that was pretty good today. Unexpected new word. Well, I always say this, but you know, thank you so much for the poem today. I it was a good find by both of us. We stumbled across it last minute and it worked really well for today's episode. I was super excited. <laughs> so I, you know, so thank you, my comrade Heather, for in- wanting to include it today. Uh, so with that, I suppose we are done for our first episode into year two. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. You know, a callback to episode one. We stuck with Shinto and Basho will be next week. Thank you again for us reaching 100 listeners. Yay! Finally, we've hit the three-digit number. And again, thank you for your continued listenership week in and week out. We really do appreciate it. But with that, I suppose I don't need to say what next week is. We've said it many times already now. Anything else from you today, Heather, or not? I think today I'm I'm all set. Really happy to be back recording. Back to happy to be back recording. Yay. So nice to be recording again. Uh, does the crow have anything left to say before we sign off? He's been quiet for a while now. Just ruined all that other recording for us. Now I think yeah, he's got nothing else to say. Yeah, no, no. Now, now we need him to talk. He won't talk. That's okay. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you everyone for tuning in this week. Uh, don't forget, you can leave us a review over on Podchaser on iTunes and as well, you know, wherever you listen to our podcast, any likes, ratings, and review definitely will help us find new listeners. I want to say thank you to the two people who gave us the ratings on iTunes, whoever you are. Thank you so much. We do appreciate that. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Japan Archives. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow mine, which is Nexus Travels. That's N-E-X-U-S underscore travels. Anything else, Heather? And Thomas, I, I would like to just mention that um, recently, due to uh, your episode on Hokusai, that Hokusai gave me a little bit of infra- inspiration to do a little bit of changing on my website. So my website has gotten some updates and some changes and a, a bit of a refresh. Um, I guess refresh is the right thing to say. Uh, I've updated the website and it is kind of more following the little slices of life in Japan along with some photography, and it is heatheroveryonder.com. So yeah, if you're interested in some little slices of life over in Japan, be sure to check that out. If you do want to check out our show notes for the episodes, as well as looking into some more research that we've undertaken into Japanese history, be sure to head on over to japanarchivespodcast.com. So once again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week, and we will see you next week. Matane. Minasan, kiyotsukete, matane.